talk to you about a real serious subject tonight. I know we're a little later than normal, about 10 minutes later than we normally start. I'll try to remember that, but it doesn't mean it'll do you much good. But anyways, uh, I really need to talk about this. Uh, this is a deep subject, really, a deep subject. Uh, why I am not part of the charismatic movement or Pentecostal pre-charismatic movement, why am I not part of that? Why am I independent, fundamental, hellfire, damnation, King James Bible, soul winning, bus ministry, Baptist? Why am I that instead of a, a charismatic individual or Pentecostal, which, by the way, is really the same thing. It's the same movement. Uh, I have grown up before the charismatic movement was there. There were some Pentecostals. When I was young, there were a few, very few Pentecostals. They were very small and fairly anemic. And there was the churches were real small. They were handling rattlesnakes, and, and it was kind of radical people. And so it was not really somebody that would... Uh, but, but in the 70s, the whole thing about tongues started, and they began to pop up everywhere, um, in the local churches, and the thing took off. Oral Roberts was the one of the major promoters of the charismatic or Pentecostal movement, and that started in the 50s with him and his healing crusades and campaigns and different things that he did, and so it began to grow. It began to grow. It grew exponentially, really, in our country, it, it, it comes to every Bible believer to decide, am I, is this good, bad, or good, bad, or ugly? You've got you to decide. You can't remain neutral. Is this of God? Is this something God's doing or something that is, could be related to apostasy, something that God's not doing? There's only two forces. There's only light and darkness, good and evil. God and the devil, that's it. I mean, there's only two forces. Now, there can be a lot of differences between Christians. There can be many differences between Christians. There were in the first century. There was in, ever since then. And you just study church history. There have been a difference. And, and it's not necessarily a black and white issue a lot of times in that case. It's a, a, a obedience. I preach a sermon. <clears throat> I like to preach a sermon. I've preached it a couple times here already. It's called The Issue is the Bible. Well, that's not tonight. But the issue really about the whole thing is the Bible. Where do you land on the Bible? Where do you land? Is the Bible the complete Word of God, cover to cover, every jot, every tittle? To be taken in a literal, normal sense, like you take everything else? Or is it a book of neo-Orthodox said that contained the Word of God, but it's not all the Word of God? There's some injection in there of man that uh, God maybe somehow didn't want to get in there, but got in there, and it's been polluted, poisoned. And, and people who, I think, I think you see the extent of that with Grady McMurtry when he said, I mean, the whole time he's here, really all he's talking about is the first few chapters of the Genesis. Because if you don't believe the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, what do you believe about the rest of the book? I mean, if, if, if it's not accurate in the first 11 chapters, really, then how in the world can we believe the rest of it? And that's, that's a logical problem. But believe it or not, people live with it. There, there are so-called people who say they're born again, say, oh, I believe in theistic evolution or regular evolution. 
I don't think the Bible's real accurate. I think it's generally accurate, but not specifically accurate. So really the issue to this thing, what I'm going to talk about tonight, is really the Bible. How you land, where do you land on the Bible? But um, that's not what I'm going to say. But my first experience with the charismatics was on Fort Myers Beach in 1971, 7071. I was there on Fort Myers Beach. I lived on Fort Myers Beach across from the public pier. And there were no condos on the beach, by the way. You talk about it. There were not one high-rise on the beach, not one. It was just houses, summer houses. The local people here would go build what they call a disposable house because hurricane come by, blow it out. They'd build another one. But in the summertime, people here that lived here would go to the beach. You remember that. Well, maybe not. But go, they used to go to the beach, water ski, you know, take a little time off. And they go to These houses were rough-looking houses. They were rough-looking. They weren't fancy houses. But they were right on the beach because the land was cheap. I remember you could buy a beachfront lot, quarter acre for 8000 bucks, And, um, uh, you know, on and on it went from there on. So um, I was on the beach. My brother and I were heavily evangelizing the beach. There were only 3,000 people lived on Fort Myers Beach at that time. And we went from, uh, does anybody remember uh, a phone booth? They had phone booths. They had 99 phone booths on Fort Myers Beach. How do we know that? We counted them. And we went to every phone booth every night and left the gospel track for a number of weeks, many, many weeks we did that, until AT&T or whoever it was threatened us with, with like, suing us or something. Um, so if we kept leaving our gospel tracks in their phone booths. And so we eventually had to stop that. But we used to go on the beach. When the kids would come down to the beach at spring break, we passed tracks out, and we were very active on Fort Myers Beach. That's when I first came in contact with what we call Pentecostal people. At that time, they were called the Jesus Movement. They're called by a lot of different names. They go by a lot of different names. But they have very, very similar, a lot of gen, things that are generally alike in what they believe and how they approach the Bible. They have a heavy reliance on feelings. They use the Bible out of context. They really don't care about context much. They weigh, they weigh their experience over the written word of God. They weigh the written word by their experience, if I want to reverse that wording. The lack, they have lack of uh, personal spiritual uh, security and peace in their salvation. Believe that if you sin and die, you are lost. Their, end, their philosophy of end justifies the means. Seems to be the attitude concerning actions. There was whatever it takes to get the job done, even if it's immoral. I had them verbalize that to me. Lack of separation from the world was obvious by not only talking to them, by looking at them and what they did. Uh, the, by the way, the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, 15 through 17, the Bible is extremely clear and so many others. To be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. Folks, you can't have your feet in both places and be, and be right with God. You can't do it. You just can't do it. But they didn't know that. They didn't seem to know that. They had a, another thing I noticed was they had a predominance of females in areas of responsibility and leadership, uh, which if you know enough, if you know anything about the Bible, you know it's a male book. It's a male-driven book. Uh, Jesus was a man. All the 12 apostles were men. All the 12 tribe leaders were men. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were men. Um, 12, you know, just you just go down through. Adam was a man. He was, he was given leadership over the world. And you go all the way out. It's just a men's book, and it's a man's world. 
and women are there, they're good, they have a purpose, uh, but they're not men. Women, here's a real winner, women are not men. And men are not women. Why am I preaching on this topic tonight? Not because we have a problem, but I believe in preventative maintenance and edu education and to keep you away from being deceived. How? What kind of responsibility? Preacher, can a, can a Christian be deceived? That's the question. Here's the answer. Uh, 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest she also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from her own steadfastness. He's talking to believers. He's not talking to the world. He's saying you can be deceived and you can fall from your own steadfastness. There it is. 2 Peter 3.17. How about 2 John 1.8? Look to yourselves, born-again Christian, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. That means it's possible to mess up and to lose your reward. Okay, you get it? Another one, Matthew 24, 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. He's talking partially to his disciples and other people around there. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means. Um, there's just so much here, i gotta, I got to leave some of it down. Colossians 2, 4 says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Colossians 2, 18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward. You're talking to born-again Christians here. In a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into things which they have not seen, vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. In other words, they think they know stuff they don't. Uh, 2, Tim, 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. James 1.26 says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. One of the worst people in the world to deceive is yourself. Don't deceive yourself. That's why we need the Bible, amen? you got to go to the Bible to check you. It's a checklist. I've flown small planes a little bit, more than I wanted. And I, when you fly a small plane, if your pilot doesn't do a checklist, get out and walk. they got to do this checklist. They've flown a thousand times, but they still need to do a checklist. Fuel, check. You know, sober, check. Do the checklist. Or don't, don't get in the plane if they don't do the checklist. So uh, uh, a Christian can be deceived. You've got to be careful. You need to check it with the Bible. Some people ask, why is there so much confusion in the area of churches? Why are there so many churches? Maybe you've asked that. Why are there so many churches? Well, let me give you some answers for that. Let me give you five answers. Number one, because, the, because there can be many errors but there can only be one truth. There's not a half-truth. A half-truth is a whole lie. There can't be a three-quarter truth. Three-quarter truth is a whole lie. It's either truth, but error, my goodness, you can, you can have all kinds, you can make up all kinds of stuff that's false, right? And so why do we have so many churches? Why is there so much confusion in the area of Christianity? Because there's the devil. 
And he's a liar and the father of it. These guys memorized that verse, John 8, 44. A second reason is because Paul himself said there would be many deceivers. Uh, that's 2 Timothy 3.13. Because the devil is the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33. Because at the end times approach, the beginning of the great falling away or apostasia is taking place, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Because there was confusion and abuse in the early church of the first century, in the city of Corinth, in the city of Galatians, in areas of Galatians, and in the city of Colossians. How could we expect anything less if they had that kind of thing going on back then? Well, of course we have it. So people want to want to, want to deny the validity of the of the Bible and, and the church because there's a lot of confusion. That, don't do it. Don't do it. He said it would happen. Jesus said there'd be many come after me claiming to be the Christ, doing this, doing that. In Revelation, there's going to be so many. The Bible says a false prophet doing so many miracles that if it wouldn't be for the Holy Spirit, he'd deceive the very elect. So you may ask, what keeps you from becoming a charismatic bill? Thank you for asking. My objection number one, they place their experience over the written word of God. In, the many, in numbers and many interviews that I've had with charismatic folks, Pentecostal folks, they relate some, usually relate some traumatic spiritual experience they have had. And really that alone would be okay, but their experience contradicts the known word of God in many instances. And when asked to choose, a lot of times I'll bring their attention, but what you're saying cannot be right because the Bible says differently. And here's what they say. But I had this experience. I said, well, you may have had an experience. I'm not denying any of that. But the Bible says this. So what are you going to believe? And I said, but I had this experience. And I could never deny this experience. In other words, not being humble enough to say I may have been deceived by my false experience. Because there is such a thing, can be such a thing as a false. Listen to me. If an angel appears to you tonight in white, shining garments, lights up the whole room, and he says something that doesn't go along with the Bible, he's a false teacher. I don't care how big he was or how bright he was or how woohoo it was. It's the Bible that we go by. This is forever settled in heaven. This is a more sure word of prophecy than any miracle, any sign, any wonder that ever could happen. If you're Subject to signs and wonders, you're tossed about with every wave and wind of doctrine, and you're not going to be able to be stable. But God wants you to be stable. They say, um, a lot of times when they approach the Bible, uh, they'll, they, example, a common example is they'll say, oh, this uh, woman preacher, woman preacher, uh, the Bible says that in Timothy that a woman's not to... Uh, not to teach or usurp authority over a man. It goes on, tells you why, and it's real clear. Uh, also, it says in Timothy and in Titus, where it gives qualifications of a pastor, that they're to be a husband of one wife. And that was before transgender and all that. So, I mean, it's just obvious that a preacher and deacon must be a male. They must be a, I'm going to say it, biological male. Here I go. Got to be biological male. Does that mean men are better? No, it just means that's what God said, and I'm just a, hey, I don't write the book. I just preach it. You know, don't kill the messenger. But uh, I'll go to him and contradict. I'll say the Bible contradicts what you say. Well, they say, well, in the first century, 
it was a male-run world, male, male everything. Of course, we understand that Paul was a chauvinist pig. He was a Pharisee, and he would never allow women. And so we expect him, so we just don't really pay attention to when he says that stuff. Whoa, I've heard it. Uh, they'll say it does not really mean what it says. They'll say the culture then was different than it is now. They'll say the Bible is meant for a guide and is not really an exact tool to be used. They'll also say that's your opinion. Uh, they'll say you're, they'll, they'll accuse me of committing uh, a big word, bibliodolatry. Bibliodolatry. Idolatry of the Bible. The Holy Spirit, they'll say, contradicts what you're saying. They'll say, my experience was, was so good, it could not be wrong. That's to be equated with Pat Boone's daughter when she sang a song, it feels so good, it cannot be wrong. Let me tell you what, cocaine feels good, but it's wrong. Getting drunk will feel good, but it's wrong. Having illicit immoral relationships feels good, but it's wrong. Amen? Snorting crack is it feels good, but it's wrong. I've never done any of what I well. I haven't done any of that kind of stuff. Drunk, yes. Others, uh, they'll say, have had the experience, and I know it must be okay because others told me they had the same experience I had. That's what they say. They'll say, "Here's one of their biggest ones." So they'll say, "Well, preacher, I don't care whatever you say. A whole lot of people are getting saved." Oh, that's the big one. That justifies everything. That justifies women preachers. That justifies disobeying the Bible. That justifies everything they do. People are getting saved. Our number one priority is not getting people saved. It's obeying God. God saves people. He told us, do what I tell you to do. Go to the world, preach the gospel, every creature, I'll save folks. So when you say, well, people get saved as if that's somehow going to whitewash or justify everything else you said that was wrong, that's just not a lot good biblical logic. It's not good, not according to God's word. The Bible says, forever thy word is settled in heaven, Psalm 119, 1 Peter 125, the word of God endureth forever. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And I can go on and on. I'm just going to shorten it down. Uh, it's the word of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 66, 2, God's looking for people that have a poor and contrite spirit and tremble at his word, tremble at his word. They respect it so much, they literally tremble at his word. That's the kind of people God's looking for. That's what he said. So we need to be careful about our attitude towards God's word uh, because people, I know this is going to hurt your feelings, but people can lie in the name of Jesus. I mean, outright lie in the name of Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 26, 27. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which Think to cause my people to forget my name. Now, there he gives the real motive. By their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, and, their, and as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 to 
kind of tie in with that, and this is just, I'm just touching mountaintops. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Uh, in, in Jeremiah, going down there in verse 28, he says, The prophet hath had a dream, let him tell a dream, and he that hath, and he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rocks in pieces? Therefore, he says, Behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one of his neighbor. Behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. How much of that do we have going on in the charismatic Pentecostal movement? Almost all of their TV evangelists will be, Well, the Lord told me that God told me to say, man, I'd be real careful, knowing who God is, to speak for him. Unless you know it's God, and you're willing to die for it, because you very well may. You, you don't want to do that. The, the word of God is clear about that. It says in Jeremiah 23, 32, Behold, I'm against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness, their lightness. In other words, they don't take serious the Bibles like they should. Yet I sent them, I've sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not be prophet this people at all, saith the Lord. So in the book of Jeremiah, if you know the context of what I'm talking about, the people of God were straying away from the word of God. They had a bunch of false prophets among them that were saying God said this and God said that and God's going to do and it was a lie. And he warned them. They're out there. They're going to hurt you. They're going to take you astray. And that has indeed happened um, as what we see today. Um, the second objection I find is obvious biblical errors. And I mentioned about the just one of them, the women teaching, preaching, pastoring, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. You can look at that if you want to. Now, people come to me and say, wasn't Miriam a prophetess? I said she was. They'll say, wasn't Deborah a prophetess? I said she was. Wasn't Hulda a prophetess? I said she was. Wasn't Anna a prophetess? I said she was. Wasn't the four daughters of Philip and the evangelist uh, prophetesses? And I'll say they were. God, in his, in his uh, wisdom, chooses some women and uses them in certain capacities uh, as they were called prophetesses. In other words, they didn't have the written word of God. They were given direct revelation, direct illumination. They did not have the written New Testament to them. That didn't even come along to almost 400 A.D., really, practically speaking. The average Christian didn't have access to the New Testament like you do. But as that, as that access was gained and as the accuracy was finalized and given to the New Testament church, that stuff fell off. Why? Didn't need it anymore. Didn't need it anymore, but... Women have been used in that capacity. Another thing I find that, that, that bothers me about the movement is the Hollywood-type healing, Hollywood healing services. Why do you have to call a big group of people together, take a massive offering before you heal people? If you've got the gift of healing, why don't you go to the hospitals, nursing homes, uh, places that, and that have sick people, and begin to go down and up and down the halls praying for them and healing them Getting them out of the hospital. We'd all be happy with that. Amen. I wouldn't criticize that. There's no money in it. 
uh, maybe not a lot of fame in it, at least at the beginning, but that's what Jesus did. He basically went from village to village to village. The Bible says he healed them all. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Matthew 8, 16, he healed all that were sick. I'm just giving you a little part of the verse there. Uh, Matthew 14, 14, he healed their sick, all of them, as indicated. Matthew 15, 30, great multitudes came to him, having those who were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, many others, cast them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Uh, I, I did a study on this. He healed from a distance, Jesus did. He healed from a distance. He didn't have to touch him. He healed from touching them, some people. He healed by a simple statement of their faith, some of them. Uh, he healed severe problems which were obvious. He healed some problems which were not so obvious. He healed born blind people, deaf from birth people, maimed folks from birth. He healed. The, he raised the dead even after four days being dead. His miracles were absolutely and totally indisputable. He did not take up an offering after them as far as we know. He did not receive support from them. He healed everywhere he went. He didn't call the media, rent an auditorium, hire TV coverage, sing 30 minutes of praise songs, slay people in the spirit and speak in tongues, and then heal folks. That's not what he did. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost with power, went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That's one of the objections. Why am I not a Pentecostal or charismatic? Is because of so much error in this area of healing. Now, does God still heal in the New Testament? Absolutely, positively. In James chapter 5, he's got a prescription for healing there. Now, you're sick, call the elders of the church together, the leaders of the church together, and have them anointed you, confess your sin, anoint them with, anoint them with oil. And if it's in God's will, because it says in 1 John chapter 5, if, if we pray according to his will, he heareth us. Everything's according to the will of God. Sometimes it's God's will to heal. Sometimes it's God's will not to heal. We've seen people healed here at the gospel. We don't go around and make a big deal of it. We don't put it in a bulletin. We don't do big because we're not looking for any kind of fame or glory. We just want to see people help. In other words, the motivation is, is, is pure. Another thing is that what I noticed is the abuse of the thing called speaking in tongues. Many of you heard that. Speaking in tongues. I had a Hebrew teacher from Bob Jones University went to a Pentecostal church where they were speaking in tongues. He taught Hebrew, knew Hebrew, backward, forward. And he went to this uh, service. It was obviously women were speaking in tongues by majority. Some woman would get up and some, maybe another woman or a man, mostly women, however, were given the interpretation of it. And some weren't, some were. Well, he got up, and he thought he would, uh, he just stood up in the midst of them, and he, he quoted Psalm 23. I got this from him directly. He quoted, now, if you ever heard Hebrew spoken, it's a very guttural language, very strange-sounding language, which is the kind of thing he was hearing them do. And so he's, he quoted Psalm 23. And somebody in the, in the, over on the side says, God gave me a word of interpretation and interpreted some off-the-wall interpretation. And when the guy got done, or a girl or whatever it was, he didn't tell me who it was, he just got done with, the, with this uh, false interpretation, by the way. He got up the front and he says, I want to tell you people you're being deceived because that person back there is a liar. He's a false prophet. 
He said, I said something, but what I really said was Psalm 23 in Hebrew. And that person and these other people I have an idea are falling into the same kind of a lie. You people are being deceived. Did they accept it, thank him for it? They threw him out by force of that place because they wanted it to be true whether it was true or not true. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 28, tongues is mentioned as one of the gifts given to the church. It is the last gift mentioned in, in order, in priority. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks about prophecy. That's preaching, telling, speaking the gospel. That is the best gift to seek, and you're to edify the church in what you do. Paul said, I'd rather, I'd rather speak 10,000 words that people understand than, than, than one in, in tongues, than five or whatever he says there in, in Corinthians in tongues. And uh, he says, I would rather help people with what God has given me. Also, if you look in Acts chapter 2, what is tongues? Well, tongues in Acts chapter 2 was Peter got up and preached in 17 different languages which, which were mentioned there by the word dialectos, which was their mother tongue. 17 different languages. One Peter, Peter probably speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, and he was probably preaching in Aramaic or Hebrew, and the, the gift was they heard him in their native dialect. That's really what I believe to be the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is more the hearing than it is the speaking. People hear in their native tongue. That's a miracle for sure. And let me show you, I've been overseas. I begged God to have that gift. If you ever, ever preach to an interpreter, you hate life. You say one word, he says 20. You say two words, he says 30. You don't know whether he's talking about the same thing you're talking about or not, but I've preached a numbers of times through interpreters. I said, oh, God, give me the ability to speak to these people, and they understand me in their native language. And guess what the answer was? No. Go to school, learn the language. Remember, Jimmy Swagger had a bunch of folks out there. He, Jimmy said, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved, by the way. I heard him say it. Tongues was a sign of salvation. By the way, Tongues cannot be, cannot be a sign of whether you're saved or not. Because Paul said, do all speak in tongues? And the answer to the question is no. Because he meant no. It's one of, it's one of them questions that you have a no answer for. Assume no. Do all speak with tongues? No. And so if, don't, if not everybody speaks in tongues, then that cannot be a sign of whether you're saved or not. It cannot be. Um, and, and so... And I'm just, you know, like I say, I'm just skimming the surface on this stuff uh, as I've done a study on it. But anyways, uh, the gift of tongues, I asked the Jimmy Swaggers missionaries in Haiti, a young couple, I said, did you have to study the language? And they said, absolutely. We've gone to language school for three years. I said, why? Jimmy says, you get the gift of tongues. These people will be able to understand you in their native tongue if it's according to Acts chapter 2. And, and what we see in the New Testament, you're going to be able to speak. They're going to be able to understand. You're getting a message across. Woohoo! I said, oh, no, man, no. No, no. No, we, we got to study. I thought, wow, what is that all about? What is that all about? Now, we're told forbid not to speak in tongues, but we're also told very strict rules in the same book on how to speak in tongues. Amen? 
First it said women are to be silent in the church. It's talking in context about speaking in tongues. Look it up. First Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 14. Look it up. So if you want to follow the book, it says forbid not to speak in tongues. And number one, women are not allowed to speak in the church in tongues. They're not allowed. Now that, go to any Pentecostal meeting you want to go and you're going to see the women are dominant in their speaking. The second thing is it said nobody is to speak without somebody interpreting. So you don't have this guy speak and that guy speak and this guy speak with no interpretation. Then it says when you speak, no more than three people are to speak. And so there are specific rules laid down. Now you say, I don't have to follow those rules. Well, maybe you don't have to follow the rules of qualifications for a preacher, qualifications for a deacon, The rest, what the rest of the Bible says. I thought all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable. You know, I, I, thought, I thought the Word of God is our guide, according to the Bible itself, of how to conduct ourselves. The fourth thing I, I know, I'm, I'm hurrying. I know it's late. The fourth thing I notice is the worldliness that characterizes the charismatic Pentecostal movement. It is, a, it is a, a movement that generally, if you stand back and look at it, mirrors the world. It mirrors their music, and I won't get into that whole subject because that took me, I got five sermons just on the music. How the music is, uh, is of the world and not of God. Now, I'm not talking about the words now. Don't get into the words. I'm talking about the song itself and the music that propels it and the beat-driven music, that kind of thing, rock and roll. And so the worldliness of dress, the standards for morality, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage without consequences and without people protesting about it when the Bible says that if a person gets divorced and remarries, they commit adultery. And if you've been divorced remarried, you need to repent of that and get right. Just like if you lied, you need to repent of that and get right. If I lied, I hey, Tom, you lie, it's okay. No, it's not okay. If I tell Tom it's okay to lie, that's a horrible thing. Look, I just go by the book. If whatever Jesus said, that's what it means, and let's do it. Let's follow it. That's what caring about the Word of God. The fifth thing, and i got to skip all kinds of other stuff. I want to end with this. The fifth reason I'm not a Pentecostal is because Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, prophecies, slaying in the Spirit, and these kinds of things, seems to be uniting religion. It's a uniting thing. The problem is it's uniting people that don't believe the Bible. It's uniting Methodists with Lutherans with Presbyterians. I'm talking about liberal folks. It's uniting Catholics. There's Pentecostal Catholics, and yet they're still they're still Catholic. Now you know Catholicism. Now don't 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 sit there and look at me and say Catholicism is not that bad. It's bad. It's a works-based religion. And, and I've said this, and I don't mean to offend anybody that's been Catholic, but Catholicism has maybe sent more people to hell than any single religion in the world. Why? Promising them life. If you'll take communion, if you'll come to church, if you won't commit this sin and won't commit that sin. That's not how you get life. You get life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and that only. There's only one way to do it. My wife had been to Catholic church. She was raised 
up in the Catholic Church, went to program school for eight years, and when I met her, she was as lost as a person could be. Didn't have a clue what it was to be saved. I didn't help her very much for the first year or so I knew her, but later when I got right with God, I went to her and said, you can't be saved by any of those works. you got to get saved by faith. She said, what, what are we talking about? Didn't know the gospel. So how in the world are you in a movement, in a church, go to the schools, learn all of the things, and then not know what the simple gospel is? But you come to gospel Baptist school, and you're going to hear the gospel real quick and real soon. You're going to be able to know what it is to be saved. So the, the charismatic is uniting Catholics with Protestants. Every corner, every kind of belief and disbelief around the commonality of an experience. So this experience is creating what we call an ecumenical movement that is contrary to the Word of God. I just quote a couple things, and I'll stop. Romans 16, 17. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, 16. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, that's the word of God, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 5.12, I would they that were, they, they, he was talking about those that were giving them false teaching. He says, I would they were even cut off which trouble you. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, 9, he says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from the that called you unto the grace of God unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preach unto you, let him be, the word is anathema, accursed. It's the strongest language that we have to use. God does not mess around with people that pervert the Bible. He does not mess with them. It is a massively serious offense. And uniting everybody to just be back. Give me one example. I stopped. I got a, something in the mail years ago on a citywide crusade. It was a multi-denominational crusade that they wanted to have in the city. And they said, here was, how, here was what it basically said to me as a pastor. Let's forget our doctrinal differences and come together over Jesus. That was a statement. Let's forget our doctrinal differences and come together over Jesus. Now, forgetting my doctrinal differences which is, if I believe with all my heart, my soul, my mind, that these words are true and they're plain and they're in context and they're provable, you're telling me to forget that and adopt what I believe is wrong to this for the sake of unity. And I will not do that. Why not? Because the Bible told me not to do it. I just read you some of the verses. The Bible says avoid them. Don't keep company with them. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if, if it says in, in the case of a disobedient brother, don't have any, don't eat with them. And in John it says, if you bid them, if you bid them, God's speed, does it say? You're a partaker of their evil deeds. I get, I get to partake of their evil deeds by wishing them well. 
That's how serious God is to stay away from that. So what's, what's Satan got in mind? Well, he's got in mind if he can pollute us enough, God will judge us. If he can cause us to be polluted and cause him to be, like, like I said about the Laodicean church, I want to spew you out of my mouth. You make me sick. He's talking about his people and the church of Laodicea. He says, you're not hot or cold. You're compromised. I just want to throw you up. I just want to throw up. You make me sick. And he says, what's he telling them to do? Repent. Get right. Yeah, that's what he wants to. And that's five reasons why I'm not a Pentecostal. Father, thank you for the few minutes tonight and teaching. This goes out all over the world, really, through the web. May God you help some of the folks who listen to this to add to it, uh, deepen it, but may this help them. Help us to hold the line, not to compromise truth no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.